of the flood is very much that kind of story. Because what we are seeing in this account here is the nature of who God is and his disposition toward people. And it, then it becomes not just a story of this is what happened thousands of years ago, but it also becomes a story that's very relevant because it reveals who God is, a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if there's any kind of analogous situation to our lives here today, if this is also a world that is filled with wickedness, corruption, and violence, that there might also be some kind of application to ourselves. So scripture has that dynamic. Yes, it's a history, but it's more than a history. It gives a drama, but this is more than just a play. It is an appeal and a warning, but it's more than just a plea. If we are passionate to grow to know God, if we desired how to learn how to become his people, how we are to live faithfully unto him, then these stories become much, much, much more than simply fun Sunday school stories that we learned when we were children, that in my day we saw marching up on the flannel graph two by two. Today, my sons watch videos of how the animals went marching up two by two. But it becomes a story where God is making his appeal to us. Will you hear? Will you respond? Will you listen to this drama? And so by telling us this story, God invites our judgment. C.S. Lewis wrote a book many years ago called God in the Dock. And this book was basically an apologetic series of arguments. It was a number of talks, uh, papers that he had published. And these essays hadn't been published in his lifetime, but were gathered together. But they all had this common theme of defending Christianity. And the basic premise behind this book was that God has opened himself up to our judgment. That by speaking to us, he in a sense does make himself vulnerable. We can either hear his word. He's put himself uh, in a sense on trial telling us his story so that we can make a judgment about it. And by communicating, he gives us that opportunity to either receive his word or to reject it. But it would be a mistake to take this appeal to us as a weakness. The reason that God is able to open himself up to us in this way is because he is not vulnerable. He is able to simply reveal who he is. And it does not affect or harm him whether we accept or reject him. He's not coming to us as a petitioner. He's not coming to us as a beggar. He's not coming and saying, please hear my story, respond, and then bring those guitars on Sunday and worship me. Because if you guys don't come and sing those praises, I'll be so hurt and so lonely. But rather, we see a very different story that we saw the introduction for last week. And so I want to briefly review what we looked at at the beginning of chapter 6, because that sets the contrasts in place between two groups of people, 
And then the remainder of chapter 6 is then going to reveal to us God's plan. And then in, from chapter 6 to chapter 7, what happens is that we move from God's revelation of his plan to the execution of his judgment. And then we see the outcome of God's judgment in chapters 8 and 9. And so if we can pull up, uh, can I use the, uh, yes. Okay, so what we saw at the beginning in terms of this contrast at the beginning of chapter 6 that helps us see these two different types of perspectives of the world, we see the perspective of humanity in verses 1 to 4, and we see the multiplication of humanity upon the earth, and we see that their determination to do as they chose. And there's that very intriguing aspect to where you see these people, and it says that they saw that the daughters of men, the sons of God, saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And that word saw echoes back to creation. Because if you remember in creation, what happens is God does something, and he sees it, and he saw that it was good. And so God is doing things and planning and organizing and structuring and creating the world according to his sovereign design. And now we see humanity, which was created in the image of God, doing the same thing, but doing it in a different way. And the difference we see here is that they are doing things in light of their own perception of good, which is exactly what we saw as a sin in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, because Adam and Eve saw the fruit and saw that it was desirable to eat. Um, in contrast, in verses 5 to 8, we have God seeing, and he sees the wickedness of man upon the earth. But in contrast, he sees Noah differently. And so uh, a couple of these contrasts that we see paralleled in verses 1 to 8 is that in terms of the human activity, human activity, humanity is multiplying upon the face of the earth. And what God sees is that the multiplication of humanity also results in multiplication of wickedness. And in terms of how they act, humanity is now acting according to their own lights. In some way, they're fulfilling the mandate of God. They're multiplying and filling the earth. But they're doing so in a way according to their own design, according to their own perceptions of good and evil, according to their own desires. And what we see is that humanity, when they act according to their own desires, exploit. You know, this is the same kind of problem that we see today, uh, kind of the impetus as we saw last week behind the, the Me Too movement, right? Because those who were, as in those days, rich and powerful, take advantage of their position in order to exploit those over whom they have power. And so their actions is that they do as they choose, as they see fit, as they see good for themselves. And what God sees is that every thought of his heart is evil continually. Um, and then the consequence of this is that God says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. He is flesh, his day shall be 120 years. Um, and I think uh, last week I talked about how Elder Gordon and I have a little bit different perspective of this passage. 
I take that 120 years as, in a sense, 120 years remaining until the time of the flood, so the judgment upon the earth. And we see the corresponding disposition, the attitude of God in, in verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so um, here's where actually it's very helpful, those of you who talk to me about the passage in the sermon, because I get what was clear and also what was not clear, and this aspect of regretting. And this is something that I want to say a brief word about, because what we have here is what we call an anthropomorphism, or actually here an anthro, more specifically an anthropopathism. And so I have a slide a little bit later on this. What is an anthropomorphism? An anthropomorphism is the ascription of human attributes to supernatural or divine beings. In theology, the conception or representation of God with human qualities and affections, or in a human shape. This is what we mean when we say, the hand of God has done this. And when we say that, do we mean that there was a very large fleshly hand that appeared out of the sky and it came down and maybe it adjusted some something, brought a storm to a certain place or something, but the hand of God does this. This is an anthropomorphism. We're attributing some human quality, a hand, to a divine supernatural spirit being. And anthropopathism is the ascription of human passions to supernatural beings, especially the supreme being. And so we have here, when it says in verse 6, the Lord said, uh, the Lord was sorry, or he repented, or he regretted that he had made man upon the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. What we see here is the disposition of God towards the wickedness of humanity. And it's not as though we're having the situation where God has come and he says, oh man, I made a mistake. I really shouldn't have created human beings. Look how badly this has turned out. Uh, if you turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Samuel, we'll see the same language here. 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 35. And this is the situation where Saul had turned uh, and disobeyed God. And God had rejected Saul as king over Israel. So the people had demanded a king. God had given them a king. And at this point, Saul as a king had disobeyed God. And God repented or regretted making Saul king over Israel. And you'll see there in verse 35, it says, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And so is God caught off guard here? Like Saul looked like he would be such a great king. But then, as it turned out, Saul went a different direction. And there's actually a, a theological movement that follows this idea, and it's called open theism. It's a very wrong-headed idea. Uh, a number of people, churches, turned in that direction about two decades ago. It was a very poor kind of understanding of scripture there. Because all you have to do is turn back a few chapters to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Did God know Saul would go in the direction that he did? And in fact, when the people had come, and they'd come to Samuel, they said, give us a king to be over us. And you remember how God had responded to that. God said to Samuel, they have not rejected you but me. 
Now go and tell them the ways of the king that will be over them. And we find those words where Samuel goes and warns the people. If you demand a king and a king like the other nations have, this is what's going to happen. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 to 18, we read this. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, this will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And so when we see that, you see that when Saul goes in the direction that he does, he does not do so unexpectedly. In fact, this is exactly what God had told the people would be the ways of a king would be set over them. And you see here that it's the same, the same problem that has plagued humanity from the beginning. Because in Genesis chapter three, when humanity rejects God and says, we will not take your truth, we will determine truth for ourselves. We will determine good and evil for ourselves. It then becomes a competition. Everyone's best interests for themselves, which is the state that we have in the world today, the state that we had at the time of Noah, the state that we had at the time of King Saul. In every one of those cases, the problem is the same. It does not have to be that people are evil in the way that we imagine villains in movies, because the most simple evil person is a person who is looking out for their best interests. And everyone's interests will come into conflict at some point in time. And it is that desire for our self-interests over the interests of another, which Paul also talks about in the book of Philippians, which is the root of human wickedness. But here, in terms of what Saul does, we see that God is not surprised. But it says in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that God regretted, or uh, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 15, that God repented of or regretted making Saul king over Israel. And what we see there is what we would call an anthropopathism. It's a helpful way to communicate to us the disposition, the attitude of God towards the fact that Saul is king over Israel. Or, in the case that we have here in Genesis chapter 6, it helps us understand God's disposition or attitude towards having created humanity, which has now filled the earth that he has created for them, but filled it with corruption and wickedness. And so uh, in verse 6, when we read that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart, that attitude of regret helps us understand the disposition of this divine, timeless, eternal being 
towards the creation of humanity within time and space. And so uh, that's a uh, helpful communication where we then understand how God regards sinfulness and wickedness upon the earth. Okay, so then the next contrast we see is that humanity seeks to establish themselves. But in contrast to God's, uh, in contrast to humanity's desire to be established, the decision of God in response to human wickedness is to wipe them out. Uh, the Nephilim there are on the earth, and we talked about who the Nephilim were. I think most likely they were simply those who had authority and power in the days. Uh, you see at the end it says, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Um, and they chose who they were. Um, in other words, they're choosing according to their own self-interest. And so in response, God says, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then the final contrast we see, which is going to set the stage for our narrative, is the contrast between the great and the powerful of the earth and the man who finds favor in the eyes of God. And so we read in our passage today, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. But in contrast, we have Noah in verse 9 who walks with God. And in the remainder of chapter 6, what we have is we have God setting the stage, telling Noah, this is what I'm going to do in response to the wickedness of the earth. And we see here the provision of grace. And so if you're looking at the outline in the bulletin, I've actually kind of got that reversed because it's this provision of providence that comes before the testimony of wrath. God comes to Noah and he reveals to them what will happen. And he tells Noah in verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of the creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And then we see the response of Noah in verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. And so here, what is going on? And it's very intriguing. God lays out this plan, uh, the, the dimensions, the specifications of the ark and how it is to be built. And what is it that God is doing? And what, how is it that Noah is responding? We see that Noah is someone who's going to need to act by faith. Faith is the, is, is, is the defining aspect of no, who Noah is here because God tells him, build this ark. And this thing is a huge thing to build. And we, we know that uh, probably approximately around the amount of time uh, looking at the 120 years back in verse 3, also in terms of uh, when God spoke to Noah and when, how old Noah is when he builds, uh, when the flood comes, it takes Noah around 100 to 120 years to build this ark. And one of the things we also see from uh, the pages of the New Testament, in uh, particular uh, Peter, 
Peter tells us that throughout this time, probably both by word and by the action of faithfully building this ark, that Noah is testifying to God's judgment and wrath against sin and the need for repentance throughout this 100 to 120 years. And so God is wrathful against the sin of humanity, and yet he is also patient. And there is that opportunity to repent, to repent of the wickedness, to repent of the evil, to repent of the corruption. But we see the plan of God revealed in chapter 6. We see then in chapter 7, God says to Noah, now it is time. And there's this 100 years that span chapter 6 and chapter 7. And there is the testimony before humanity. Repent. This is not the way things should be. But the humanity that was on the earth at that time continues in, in its own way. Perhaps not unlike many of the things that we see here today. But then in chapter 7, when no, the Lord says to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household. And Noah goes into the ark. In verse 11, it says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of that month, on that day, all the fountains of the deep, great deep, burst forth, and the windows of the heaven were opened. When judgment comes, it is exactly too late. When judgment comes, there is no longer any time to repent. And I want to make a few notes about what do we see here. We see in, in that earlier section that there were these great men, and they were certainly part, perhaps they exemplified the selfishness, the self-centeredness that is characteristic of the wickedness of the earth on that time. But what is wiped out when the flood comes? Everything. Everyone. The great sinners, the small sinners, everything is wiped out. What's the difference? Well, one of the things that our family has discussed is we've watched the tragedy that's been unfolding in, in Ukraine. And at one point, uh, one of my sons uh, expressed the same sentiment that was expressed by uh, some of our US congressmen, which was that the only way this is going to be solved is someone goes and takes out Putin. Now, not maybe so bad of a thing for my sons to say, probably not such a great thing for a US congressman to say. <laughs> But what's the, the way I responded to my children was this, what's the difference between Putin and you? And the, hopefully one thing that is a big difference is they have the spirit of God working in their lives. But in terms of some of the actions, the major difference is the amount of power, right? Because, I mean, this is not just true of them, so I'm not just trying to embarrass them, it's true of all of us, right? Aren't there times when we use what talents, abilities, authority, and power we have 
for our own interest. And if you're walking with the Lord and you're engaged in that process of sanctification, becoming more like Christ, what is the fight that you are engaged in? You're striving to think less of yourselves and more of others, right? Because what's the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. And what's the natural corollary to the first and greatest commandment? And all of you should know it, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so our process of sanctification is, 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 is that struggle to break out of this me-centered universe that I'm living in and because someone who loves his neighbor and thinks, how can I be a blessing to Jeffrey? How might the way that I live and what I do, the resources that I have, be made a blessing to Will? I'm just going down that line right there. There's no one behind Will, so the doorway's next. But you see the point here, right? Like Putin has a great deal of power and he's able to enforce his will. And because the people are terrified of him and he has the military behind him, there's no one able to resist him and he's able to get his way. But I see this dynamic played out in my family all the time. And in fact, I'll just say this, many times I have to go to my children and apologize to them. And I have to apologize to them because I've done something sinful against them. Maybe I had a difficult day. And so when I come home, I'm irritable. And so now I can throw my weight around because they're church members, but they're church members under my power. So that's why it's good that I am accountable to the congregation because if you were all under my power, I'd probably behave just as badly to you and then I'd have to apologize to you except that I probably wouldn't. <laughs> uh, but the reason I have to do this is because when I have that authority and I have that ability, I'll sometimes use it for my own selfish reasons. And that's what I need to repent of. And, and, and so you see that there's a, a motivation motivating Putin that is the same kind of motivation that is behind me. And so when judgment comes, it's universal. Because there's great sinners and there's small sinners. But all it takes is for the small, sinner, for the small sinners to become great sinners is just give them more power, give them more authority, give them more opportunity. And so how is God disposed to human wickedness? He wipes out great human wickedness, and he wipes out small human wickedness. Because the foundation, the root of it, is the same in each and every one of us. And so we read in chapter 7 that everything that has breath on the earth is wiped out. And the one exception is Noah and his family. Now, one of the things that we can sometimes think is that this God of the Old Testament, we look at passages like the flood, or we look at how God sent Israel in to Canaan as a judgment upon the inhabitants and to wipe them out. And we think that God of the Old Testament was wrathful and, and unforgiving. But the God of the New Testament, who sent Jesus, is loving and kind and forgiving. I said at the beginning of the sermon that, in a sense, the, the, there's an aspect to which Scripture 
is an appeal to us. God is opening himself up to us, and he is saying, hear my word. Will you respond and see the message here and see that you yourself have wickedness that you need to repent of and turn away from? But the wrath of God is not less today than it was in the past. And so this petition, this plea that God is making, it's not this beggar coming to us and saying, please come and, and, and join my church and sing my praises and give your offerings. And so I spoke earlier about anthrop anthropomorphisms before, and those are analogies that kind of help us understand the disposition of God. And if I was to give another analogy, obviously there's a lot of ways in which this is not a good analogy, but there's a way in which it's true. How many of you are familiar with John Wick? Okay, so th for those of you who are familiar with John Wick, he's a violent man who you can't stop. And in a sense, this is what you've done. You've gone, you've shot his dog, and you stole his car, and now he's coming for you. <laughs> So for those of you who are not familiar with John Wick, um, these movies have no redeeming value. <laughs> I just saw a clip on YouTube. That's how I know about him. When you offend him, he comes after you. And you can be a gangster who has huge mobs at your beck and call, and it will not help because he will slaughter all of them, and then he will come hunt you down and kill you. The wrath of God, <laughs> it's not reasonless like that. And God is full of mercy for those who will come and repent. But we've done worse than that to God. We've abused his creation. We've ignored his law. We've mutilated, killed, and destroyed his children. And he's saying, repent now because judgment is coming. And if you look at the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is a very helpful book in terms of relating these Old Testament accounts to our present day circumstances. Because what it tells us is that there was a certain kind of judgment that came long ago. There was a certain kind of message that came long ago because in the past, God sent his prophets. But what the writer of Hebrews says, today he has sent his son. And so the message is greater. The mercy is greater. The revelation is greater. The blessing is greater. But the penalty for ignoring them is now also greater. And so today, if you hear his word, do not despise it, because the judgment that will be to come will be far worse than a worldwide flood that wipes out every living creature. And so when we read a passage like this, one of the things that should come through loud and clear, God is wrathful against sin. In terms of God's plan of redemption and how he will rescue man, it will not be this. It will not be that God will ignore sin. God is exceedingly wrathful against sin. But if that is the case, what hope is there for us? At the beginning of chapter 8, we read, But God remembered Noah and the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. 
here is where we see great grace. Because what is our relation to this world? This world was created for humanity and not the other way around. Because when God wipes out all the living creatures, he wipes them all out. It wasn't the animals that were sinful. It was humanity that was sinful. But why is it that God has Noah build the ark and then bring in the animals? And one of the clues that we have is that the animals are divided into two categories, right? They're the clean animals and the unclean animals. And one of the things that this points to is that what God is preserving in the ark is everything that Noah will need. We see, obviously, the provision of food. And so there is the sustenance of Noah. But in clean and unclean, we also see that God is providing for something else. God is providing for the relationship between Noah and himself in that category of clean and unclean. Because those animals will be needed in terms of the sacrifice, whereby that covenant between Noah and his family and God is established. And so you see at the end of chapter 8 and verse 20, it says, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. By the way, this is one very big clue that the flood that was experienced was a worldwide flood, or at least it was a flood that covered every place where humanity was. Because there have been plenty of local floods, right? But here God covenants, I will not destroy humanity again by flood. And it is a count of the sacrifice that Noah offers to God. But this is the great hope for all of us because we are in that process of becoming God's people, right? And yet, when I see God's anger and God's wrath against sin, and I look at my own life, if you live with me one week, you'll see plenty of sins. I sin a lot. I try to repent of those sins, but there's some that I probably don't even know I've committed. And here's where the hope for us is, because what happens with Noah? We see, first of all, the covenant is established on the basis of a sacrifice. And then we also see in chapter 9 that one of the first things that Noah does is Noah sins. And so at the end of chapter 9, we see that Noah begins in verse 20 to be a man of the soil and he plants a vineyard and in planting the vineyard he becomes drunk and he lays in a disreputable condition in his tent and then compounding his sin his younger son Cain comes in and he mocks his father and there isn't a lot of time to explore all the implications of this, but one of the things that I oftentimes wonder is what is going on when we see oftentimes these patriarchs and they're issuing some sort of, uh, in this case, uh, a curse over his younger son, or, or uh, as we often see also uh, the blessings that the patriarchs will give their sons and the different kinds of blessings. And some of the blessings seem less like a blessing than maybe a little bit of a curse. Uh, is it that they actually have the power to determine the future for their offspring? And 
it's difficult to wrestle over these passages. And this is where I've basically come to. It is not so much a, a determination, but a foretelling, a sort of prophetic utterance. And what we see here is both in terms of what um, Ham does and Noah's pronouncements over Canaan. And, and that's actually kind of a clue because he does not directly curse Ham, but he actually pronounces this judgment upon Ham's son. And so there's a number of things that we can take from this. First, in terms of God's relationship to us, Noah was the righteous man. He was the one man in all the earth that God chose to preserve. But Noah sins. And that's a great comfort to me because, as I said, I sin. But I can still have a relationship with God. How do I have that relationship with God? It's on the basis of a sacrifice. Not the same kind of sacrifice that Noah offered, but the sacrifice of one who came thousands of years later and offered his life so that his people would be reconciled to God. And so we can have that relationship with God. And yet, in terms of this foretelling, what I would say we can draw from this is that sin does have its consequences. And so even for you who are Christians sitting here and you're thinking, I'm safe, I've accepted Jesus Christ, his forgiveness is covered over my sin, sin has consequences. And so one of the things we probably see about Ham's family here is that there was a certain kind of culture, there was a certain kind of attitude that is typified by Ham's action in this case, where he despised his father. And that kind of attitude had certain consequences that were passed down from father to son. And the kind of sin that was perhaps endemic in Ham's life was something that had an effect upon his children. And so it resulted in this. And so when we come into this passage, one of the things that I take very strongly from this, flee from sin. Sin displeases God. My relationship with God is established. It is secure on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ. And yet at the same time, sin will have its consequences. Sin does lead to certain results. And yet, even in sin, there is repentance. There is the foundation of the relationship we have with God. This relationship is the one that we celebrate at the communion table. At the communion table, what we proclaim when we take the bread and we take the wine is that we participate in Christ. We participate in the one sacrifice that for all time satisfies the wrath of God against sin. And so this wrath that does not spare the great and does not spare the weak will pass over you if you receive the one who accepted the wrath of God on your behalf, Jesus Christ. And so when we partake of communion, we take the bread representing the body of Christ, which was offered as a sacrifice for sin. When we drink the wine, we drink commemorating the blood of Christ, which was shed to cover over sin. And so we invite all of you who have been baptized to partake with us in communion. If you have not been baptized, we would ask that 
you take that first step of obedience to Christ. Uh, we just had baptism a few weeks ago at Easter. We'll have baptism again coming up uh, this Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so any of you who are interested in knowing how to receive Christ in following him baptism, please come and talk with me after the service. Um, but now is the time that all of you who have been baptized into Christ, we proclaim the satisfaction of the wrath of God against sin through the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who willingly gave his life that we might be saved. And so uh, let's take time now to prepare our hearts, and I will ask the uh, servers to come forward. see. Yeah. Um, Howard, I'll ask you to stay in the middle. William, you can go to the right. And Kevin, you can take the left side here. Oh, oh Gordon will take the right. There we go. 